morning, Southbridge. Glad you're here this morning and excited to worship uh, Jesus Christ together. And some of you rowdy, I'm sure, maybe you were a little bored with your NC State game last night or whatever reason. Um, but yeah, so yeah, you're bored with it. Clap, clap, yeah, that's good. Um, no, we're glad that you're here, each one of you. If you are a guest with us, I want to give you a special welcome. Let's give them a Southbridge welcome to each one of our guests. Thank you so much for coming choosing to be here with us this morning in this rainy day uh, that you would come to this movie theater and Lord willing have an encounter with the living God. And so we're excited that you decided to come here with us. If you are new to Southbridge, I want to personally invite you to a lunch with me and with my wife and an elder of our church and some other leaders in our church today after the service. And so an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better, for you to get to know us. We'll share a little bit of the story of our church, let you ask some questions if you would like and uh, different things. There's a few spots left for that. If you are interested in that, please go out to the connections table on your way out. Make sure we have enough child care for you and we'll have some food there for you and all those things and we would love to be able to get to know you better in that process. And then last week we began a, a new series called Mission. In our mission series, we're talking about the mission that we're on as a church, and it's the Great Commission listed at the end of each one of the Gospels, and we're excited about that. And I really, if you were here last week, you heard some of the message, and for me, it was kind of like a walk down memory lane as we talked about the formation of Southbridge and what's brought us to this place, and that we're now at a, a new place as a church. It's really a new day for us as we prepare for our first ever building, and so I talked about that. I had some big announcements. We're excited about the fact that we're going to have our first ever permanent building anywhere, and so um, you can clap about that as well. That is a praise of the Lord, and uh, we, are, we are pumped about what God's doing. And we also talked about um, some things that went beyond that. And if you have questions about that, the building, you want to see drawings of the building, you can go to our 10X booth on your way out today and just grab a, a brochure there. It'll talk about some of the things I mentioned in the message, and it talks about the vision beyond the building we're calling 10X, which is to have 10 times greater impact in our city than we currently have. And so we're praying and asking God to do something special and asking God to do something special in and through each one of us as each one of us tries to reach one person a year for the next 10 years. And so the question becoming, who is your one? Who's the person you're praying for, serving, loving, and trying to demonstrate Christ to? And some of the things that were left unanswered in last week's message, because you can only put so many things in one message, is how. How does this happen? And one of the things we're going to talk about this morning are some new values we're going to have as a church. Values are very important things to an organization, to a church, and they're the things that shape the decisions we make, the culture that we have as a church. And so today we're going to be talking about some new values we have. And before we open up God's Word and get into all that, I'm just going to pray for us and ask God to speak to each one of our hearts and what that means to each one of us individually. Let's go before the throne. Father God, we come into your presence uh, grateful that you listen to us, that you hear us, um, <laughs> that we're so small in comparison to you and, and everything that's happening, and that you can hear everybody talking to you at the same time at churches all around the world today and in places where there are no churches. And Father God, I pray that the love of your Son Jesus would shine on this world in such a way that you'd draw the nations to you. And I pray you'd use Southbridge in that process. I pray in, the, in our small spot in the world, the triangle area, that you'd use us to, to be a light here, that people would see our lives and they would glorify you as a result of the lives we live. Will you touch each one of us today? Will you speak to us? Will you have us have an encounter with you? Please change us as a result of our time with you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we get started in the, the message this morning, I just want to share with you a brief story that's really been a seven-year journey of how we've come to the place where we're at today where we're going to present new values to you as a church. And first I want to tell you how we came up with our original core values as a church. And if you were here with us last week, I, I shared with you some of the God planting a seed in our hearts, my wife and I, to, to plant a church, and we began to dream about that. The first people we asked to come were Jason and Amanda Tovey. Jason's here with us this morning. It was great for you to show up today, being on staff and everything. So it's a hi, hi. 
All right, there's Jason. He's great. And uh, we're glad that he's here. But what happened at the very beginning was Jason was living in Greenville, South Carolina. I was living in Little Rock, Arkansas. And we're dreaming about what is this church going to look like? There aren't any people. It's just us. We're not even at the place. We're going to be at the church. And we're talking about all these things. What's going to be most important to us? Those are our core values. And so we started talking about stuff. We came up with a list of about 40 different things. Excellence, evangelism, relevancy, like all the stuff you'd think of that should be important to a church. But you can't go before people and say, here's the 40 most important things to us. Because <laughs> then you go, like, everything's important, so well, great. That doesn't really mean anything at all. And so we started thinking through, what are the things that are not quite as important as a core value? They might still be important, but we wouldn't put them on that list. And how do we communicate this in a condensed version? I went on a road trip with a group of guys, four other guys who were planting churches around the country. We got in a van, we headed down the I-40 corridor, and we started visiting the churches primarily in Tennessee. And we came to this one church called Fellowship Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And before the service started, we went to their membership class. And I was sitting in a room, and I remember looking up at the wall and seeing these words, worship, community, service, growth, generosity. And there were these five words on the wall. And I looked at them and thought, these summarize like the list of 40 things that Jason and I have. I called Jason after that meeting. I said, hey, Jason, I found our core values. We're going to steal them from this church. <laughs> yeah, stealing in the name of Jesus, he said. Put a label on it. would be great. And so we talked through it, and it really did seem to work with what we were trying to communicate. And so I emailed the executive pastor at that church. This is a large church, like 7,000 people. I emailed this executive pastor and said, hey, we're starting a church in Raleigh, so we're not like right next door or anything. And uh, we'd like to take, borrow, <laughs> you know, use kinder words when I was saying that, borrow and use your core values because they're so amazing and you guys are awesome. So can we do that? And, and he was obviously flattered. He wrote back and said, you're welcome to use anything that we have. However, older and wiser pastor than me, I recommend that you take them and you put them in your own words so that they're you. <laughs> well, you was Jason and I, okay? We didn't have any people. We didn't even exist yet. And this church has like a writing department. And I'm here, I was like, thank you for your advice. We got it. You know, we're going to take your stuff. So there's like commas in the right spot, right? We're going to use all your words and all those things. Those are our values today. Now, the reason why we're changing some of those values is multi-layered. I'm going to try and share with you a couple bullet points of how this has happened. About three years ago, I was reading a book that really talks about how to reach a city. We were always believe that God wants us to reach this entire city for Jesus Christ. That's two million people. Just so you know, we're going to build a building, and if you didn't see the drawings last week, it will not house two million people. So we don't think we're ever going to build a building big enough for two million people. But we are serious about reaching a city. So how does this work? And I was reading this book. It's called The Multi-Site, Multi-Site Church Revolution. It was published in 2006. You can look it up if you want to see it yourself. And they were talking about how to have one church in multiple locations around a city. And it looks different. Lots of different churches do this in different ways. But one of the things that became very clear to me was everything you do has to be easy to replicate. Children's ministry, groups ministry, Sunday morning experience, everything, including your core values. You know what's discouraging about that? What our core values was, and this is a few years ago now, if you ask leaders in our church, what are our core values? Even the leaders couldn't remember them. They couldn't recite them. So I thought, well, we've got to simplify this. Take our five core values down to maybe three core values, perhaps two core values, but three or, two or three core values so it's easier to remember. But we didn't have a reason to do that. We weren't about to start another campus. We weren't about to do any of those things. And so we kind of put it on the shelf, didn't do much with it. And then I've shared with our church as a whole that 2011 was a dark year for me. I dealt with things like anxiety, uh, questions about whether I should be preaching, my identity in Christ, dealing with past sin, lots of stuff like that. And one of the things I did in that journey through that dark time was I read a book called Chasing Francis. Recommend it. It's a fictional book. It's about St. Francis of Assisi. Many people believe he was the last real Christian, the people that really grasped what it was to follow God and live out authentic Christianity. And there's this pastor in the book. And so it's a fictional book that goes on a pursuit of Francis, Chasing Francis, uh, and figuring out what it was like for his spiritual journey. 
takes a sabbatical from his church. And what ends up happening is this pastor, he looks back at his church, which was in America on the East Coast, about 2,500 people, 10 years old. And he looks at it and says, this is not what Jesus wants. This is pop Christianity. This is like plastic version of what Christianity should be. And it was the kind of thing where it's like looking at your church and going, if I didn't work here, would I even attend this place? And I started looking at this and thinking to myself, I don't want us to become that. And so what do we do? And I'm reading through this book. And at the end of the book, he plants another church. As soon as I close that book, I put it on my desk, and I start to do basically a journal entry that says, if I planted a church again, what would we do different? And typing through it, one of the main things was we would change our core values. And I was feeling bold that night, and so I copied and pasted that into an email. I sent it to our executive pastor, John Cullen, and it said at the top, if I planted a church, this is what I'd do again. And then parentheses, I'm not planting another church. Like, this isn't like some warning or divisive thing or anything like that. But this is what I'd do different. I wanted to know what was stirring in my heart. And when I shared it with him, it was such a great pastoral moment for him. And what he did with me is he said, well, why don't we do some of these things? And we took it to the elders and started talking to the elders. We have a leadership team that works alongside of the elders. And we began to pray through this stuff and work through the values as a church. And we've got three simplified values that we've come to now through that whole journey that we believe are easier to remember and are really more us. It's not just who we hope to be someday, but it's who we already are. And those three values are the words encounter, embrace, and engage. When we say encounter, we're talking about encountering the living God. When we say embrace, we're talking about embracing the one another's of Scripture, the confessing sin and carrying burdens and all the one another's that you see through Scripture, embracing one another. And engage is engaging our world for Christ. And so as you look at those, it's like you can see a process that they even go through. Encounter is like the fuel of our faith. It's when we encounter God and he changes us that it fuels everything that we do. We don't just do it because it's on a list or someone tells us to do it. It's because of who God is and he's revealed himself to us and it gives us the fuel of our faith. And embracing one another, it's like the maintenance. It's like caring for one another. It's our primary way of taking care of each other and engaging. It's the mission. It's the job that we all have as Christians, the Great Commission, engaging our world for Christ. And today we're going to talk specifically about the first one. And in the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about the other values. But today we're going to talk about encountering God. And that is our core value as a church. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where there's a man in the passage who has an encounter with God. And we're going to talk about what that encounter looks like and what it means to encounter God. If you have your Bibles... We're going to be the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 33, and I'm going to start reading in just a minute in verse 11. The guy that we're looking at, he's a pretty popular dude in the Bible. His name is Moses. When I say his name, some of you probably have an image in your mind that pops in. He's probably tall and handsome, has a white beard, and talks like Charlton Heston. Might be what you're thinking at this moment. Let me tell you what the Bible says about Moses. Moses is a murderer. He's saved by God's grace. He's got a ton of inadequacies. And what God does to fuel his face is throughout his journey, you see multiple encounters he has with God. The first one's one of the most famous ones. He has this burning bush experience where what God does is he gives him his commission. He gives him his mission that he's supposed to live on. And what it is is to take people out of bondage and lead them into the promises of God. And then he continues to meet with Moses throughout this process. Perhaps maybe even a more popular encounter that he has is on Mount Sinai. That's where the Ten Commandments are received, where Moses goes up on this mountain, and then God appears, and all the people see this. If you read in Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20, what ends up happening is the mountain shakes, and there's billows of smoke that come up, and there's lightning, and it's terrifying, and God speaks to the people and gives the Ten Commandments. And you know what they say at the end? We don't want that to happen again. You speak to us, Moses. God's different than us. If he speaks to us, we will die. He's holy. We're sinful. We recognize that. You be our mediator. And Moses becomes the mediator for the people, between the people and God. And one of the ways he mediates, one of the ways he goes and he meets with God is he has what's called the tent of meeting. It's outside the community, and it's a place where Moses would go and have conversations with the living God on behalf of the people. And this cloud would descend over top of this tent of meeting, and all the people would begin to worship, but they wouldn't go because they were afraid. 
And then Moses would have these intimate conversations. And what we get in Exodus chapter 33 is a glimpse into one of those conversations. Look at this encounter with me in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11. Verse 11 really sets it up. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face. It's a Hebrew idiom for the intimacy they had, the closeness they had, the friendship that they had. It wasn't that God had a face. He would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. So after he has this meeting, he'd go back to the people. But his young age, Joshua, who we met last week, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. So he'd stay back. And in this one meeting, this is what happens. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but have not let me know whom you will send with me, which isn't true. Because if you go back to earlier in chapter 33, God actually said, I'm going to send my angel with you. But Moses isn't content with an angel. He wants God to go. He says, you said, I know you by name and and you found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you. Not so that I may earn your love, not so that I might clean up my act, not so that I don't mess up, but so that I might know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest, he says to Moses. Then Moses says to him, if your presence does not go with, not me, us. You see, God's promised his presence with Moses. And he says, no, 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 it's not enough to go with me. I want you to go with us. Do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I'll do the very thing you've asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses gets bold. Look at what he says next. Show me your glory. To which God responds, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. Literally, the Hebrew there is, you cannot feel the full weight of my glory. You are limited. You are finite. I am infinite. And if I revealed my glory to you, it would crush you, Moses. You would die. But here we get a glimpse of this encounter that Moses has with God. And what we learn is what it is to have an encounter with God. And what it means is, it means to see God accurately. If we're going to have an encounter with the living God, it means we must see him for who he truly is. We must see God accurately. And you think about how important it is to see things accurately just in life. Some of you spend hundreds of dollars so you can have eyeglasses so you can see things accurately. Some of you have contact lenses so you can have undercover eyeglasses so you can see different things, whether it's the Bible as you're reading it, whether it's a stop sign in public, whatever it is, you see different things in life accurately. Some of you, I covet your eyes, got that out of the way to the first service too, because you've had laser surgery and you can see everything accurately. But you spend thousands of dollars for that. You value being able to see things accurately. Because you think about how it impacts our life. If you don't see something accurately, it can be incredibly dangerous. If you don't see a traffic sign accurately, think about how dangerous that can be. Have any of you ever pulled up to a a stoplight before and you're the first car and you saw and the light is red, but then for some reason all of a sudden you decide it's time to go? (laughs) No one else has done that? Oops. Uh, I've done that. I remember a time specifically sitting at a stoplight. It was red. I knew it was red. And then all of a sudden I decided I was going to go. It was a four-lane road. I pull out and I slam on the brakes in the middle and cars are you know, zipping by both ways. I didn't see accurately. So things were dangerous. Not only is it dangerous, but it can impact relationships. Think about if you don't see a person accurately and how that can impact your relationship with that person. Have you ever accidentally called a man ma'am? <laughs> 
Remember I accidentally called a woman, sir? <laughs> Thank you, sir. That's not a good start, okay? That's not a great way to make a first impression. That will impact your relationship. And I've shared with some of you before. When I was in seminary, I had a, a job at a corporate place, and I would go into the corporate office once a week, but all week I'd get emails from people about different things that were happening. You know, Larry's having a birthday, coming to the break room, and all that stuff. And so I'm like, who's Larry? i got to tell him happy birthday next time I'm there. So-and-so had a baby. Make sure you congratulate her next time you see her. And I remember being in the corporate office one time. I was standing at the photocopier, and this woman walked behind, and I'd gotten one of those emails early in the week and said, congratulate so-and-so because she just had a baby. She walked, this lady walks by. I thought that's who it was. So I said, congratulations. She says, on what? I says, on your baby. She says, what baby? Oh, I never want to go to corporate office again at that moment. I didn't see accurately, so it impacts the relationship. Never, ever, ever, ever is this more true than with God. It is incredibly dangerous to see him inaccurately. We know the scripture tells us there will be people that will make assumptions about God and their relationship with him, and then he's going to stand there and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. But wait, didn't you want me to? And didn't you see all the stuff that I did? You know how dangerous it is to see God inaccurately? It can mean eternal damnation. Do you know how it impacts our relationship with God? When we see him inaccurately, we're not really relating with him. We're relating with the God that we've created. And we do that so many times in American culture. We're so susceptible to this. What we do is we create Jesus in the image we want Jesus to be. And so Jesus becomes like our homeboy or Jesus becomes like some friend that's there when we need him and when we're doing stuff we don't want him around, he kind of disappears. And and we kind of create him to be comfortable or safe or the key to success. (laughs) Where else in the world would you ever find prosperity gospel than in America? Have you thought about how ridiculous this is? We're saying that we follow a guy who was homeless, persecuted, and murdered. And if we do, then we'll be rich and we'll have a big screen TV and a nice car. It'll be amazing. That's stupid. That's ridiculous. And it's certainly not accurate to the God that's revealed in Scripture. It's dangerous for how we relate to Him. It impacts our relationship, and it can impact our eternity. So what do we do? If we want an encounter with the living God, we must see Him accurately. And you wonder why the American church lacks so much power, because what we have is we use titles of God, and we use God, but in actuality we're worshiping ourselves We've created a God that's in the image of the American dream. We've called him Jesus, but it's not Jesus, the scripture. And it would be easy for me to take our passage of scripture today and just read these verses in Exodus chapter 33 out of context and make God seem warm and fuzzy that he wants to meet with us. And while we can't handle all of them, that he'll show us some of them, but what we don't realize is the reason why this conversation is even happening is because God's ticked off at these people. If you go back a chapter and you see verse 32, you see the holiness and righteousness of God. Now, we love to talk about the grace and the faithfulness and the forgiveness and the mercy and all those things, but we don't really like to talk very much about holiness, do we? But if God were just like one of us, what in the world is he going to do to save us? Where's power in that? There's nothing. He's just our homeboy. No, a friend, yes. Intimate, yes. Holy and righteous and just, yes. And what happens in chapter 32, if you glance back, if you brought a copy of the scriptures, is the golden calf story. I summarize the golden calf story. What ends up happening is Moses, he mediates for the people, right? He goes up on this mountain with God for 40 days. The people are so fickle. They're like, well, he left, so we need another God to worship. So our guy, he's gone. Let's, goes to Aaron, Moses' brother. Hey, why don't you create us a God? And so he makes, handcrafts a golden calf. And the people start worshiping it, and they start having a party about the whole deal. And then there's a, you go back and glimpse into the encounter that God's having with Moses here. And God says to Moses, essentially, these are my words, not exactly, uh, you won't believe what your people are doing down there. He says, you've got to go back down there and see these people. And Moses comes down from the mountain. 
He's carrying these big stone tablets. It's important later in the story. He's so mad, he takes these important tablets. He slams them down on the ground. They break. He takes the calf. He crushes it up, puts it in the water, and makes the people drink the water. It seems like a parent saying to the kids, you know, put soap in your mouth. You know, you're going to be punished for this. It's even. It's weird what's happening in that story. And then he goes to his brother. So they're bro- they've grown up together. They know each other. He says, what happened here? Like, I left, and I left you in charge. What happened? You know what the story is? And this is the exact, this isn't a paraphrase. I put this gold in the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> How stupid do you think Moses thought that Aaron thought he was at that moment? Like, think about relating with your sibling. If someone told you a story like that, how, what kind of look do you think Moses has given Aaron at that moment? It reminds me of when my kids do something wrong, and I know they did something wrong, and it's like, Captain Obvious, you have to know what's happened. Like, the brownies got eaten off the counter. They got chocolate over their face. What happened to the brownies, honey? I don't know. <laughs> do I have stupid written on my forehead? Like, what is Moses thinking when Aaron says this? He doesn't even address it. He's got to be just disgusted. He's ticked. He's crushed the calf. He's thrown the tablets down. And his anger has nothing on how angry God is with these people. The reason why this conversation is taking place is because God's just told Moses, you're going to the promised land. I'm not going with you. I will destroy these people. And what we're seeing there is God's holiness. He cannot tolerate sin. And as much as toleration is a buzzword, God doesn't tolerate sin. And he still doesn't today. See, for us, what ends up happening is we're able to cast our sin on our mediator, on the one who atoned for our sin in Jesus Christ. He's our leader. He's the reason. He's why we can go into the presence of God. These people didn't have Jesus yet. And so Moses is going, and he's been pleading with them, pleading with God. You've got to come. You've got to be with these people. You can't leave these people. These aren't my people. These are your people. He says, oh, I'll go with you. And what a great, if he was a self-centered leader, that nation would have been wiped out, and they'd have started over, and it been all about Moses. But he's not. He says, these are your people, and you've got to come with us. And you read verses 12 through 16, and you see Moses repeatedly begging for God's presence. He says over and over, he says, I'll go with you, Moses. No, 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 that's not enough. You need to come with us. We need your presence. How will they know the difference between us and anyone else unless you come? What will distinguish us? We need your presence. And over and over and over again, you see Moses say that in verses 12 through 16, it's because he craves God's presence. He longs for God's presence. Have you ever had a craving in your life? I was telling the first service that uh, last night I was watching a football game. It went really poor for me, so I'm angry. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, kind of. But um, what ended up happening was I'm watching a football game, and all of a sudden I want a snack. And we've been trying to eat healthier and whatnot, and the snack that I want is frozen pizza, which, by the way, tastes like cardboard and tomato paste, and it's not really good anyways. But for some reason, I really wanted that, and nothing else was going to be good enough for that. So I get up, I leave the house, I go to the grocery store, buy a frozen pizza, come back, and then I eat it, and I'm like, that's disgusting, I feel guilty, and all that kind of stuff. But I want it. I crave the pizza at that moment. You ever have a craving like that? So you crave different stuff? Some chocolate? Have you got any chocolate lovers in the house today? Some, yeah, you're excited about it. All right. When you want that chocolate, could you go eat some fruit? Would that happen? That's like God's candy, right? That's good stuff. No, that doesn't meet the need. If, if you have a craving for barbecue, then you need to eat barbecue. If you, have a, if you have to have your cup of coffee in the morning, then it's the cup of coffee. It's, that's the thing. It's different than just hunger. Just, if you're hungry, then I just need to eat something. But when you have a longing and a craving, it's that one thing. And we as humans, we all have cravings. It's easy to talk about with food. We all have cravings for things like relationships. We all want to relate. And no matter how you know, macho machismo we are, we all have to have relationships. It's part of being human. No matter how tough you are on your exterior, everybody wants to be liked. Everybody wants to experience love. Everyone wants somebody to actually know them for who they are, 
not just what they do and not the performances they can do and all the tasks they can accomplish. People want to be known for who they are. And you know what underlies all that stuff? It's a soul craving for God. And some of us don't have the words to put on or we haven't come to the place in our journey of life yet where we've recognized that that's really what it is because he's the only one that can meet all those cravings at once. And we've been created to crave him. We've been created to long for him. And you see it throughout the scripture with various different people. You see them crying out and saying, my soul, my heart, it yearns for God. Job, think about the tragedy that Job went through. And listen to what Job says. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another how my heart yearns for. It's a craving. It's a longing for God. You see it in the, in the Psalms with David in Psalm 17 and verse 15. David says, in righteousness, I will see you. I'll see your face when I wake. I'll be satisfied. It will satiate that longing. It's the only thing that can. It's you, God. That famous Psalm, Psalm 84. says that my heart yearns. My soul longs for it, even faints, just to be in your presence in the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they cry out for you. Each one of us have that. Eternity has been placed in each one of our hearts. And we long for God, even if we haven't recognized that's what it is for. Even if we try to fill that void with other stuff, with material stuff, with addictions and stuff, with porn and stuff, with trying to make people in the, in the image of God in our lives to fill those needs. Even if we do all that stuff, the longing's there. Why? Because that's how we were created. That's the simple answer. We were created to do the very thing Moses is doing here, to long for God's presence in our lives. But even more than that, what you see is his presence is amazing. It guides us, it comforts us, it protects us. It's in his presence that we sense his care. It's in his presence those longings are satiated, that, that we're, those needs are met, that fullness comes. It's in those moments where his presence comes that we realize that we can rest in him, that we can have comfort from him, that we can have peace from him, that we experience love from him, that we can be fully known by him and fully accepted by him that we can experience forgiveness, that all those things can happen in his presence. And you see throughout the scriptures over and over again, it's his presence. The book of Exodus is all about his presence. It starts with his presence in Exodus chapter 3 with the burning bush. It ends, what ends up happening at the end is they build a tabernacle and God's presence comes and dwells on it. It's kind of like the gospel of Matthew. And you think about the gospel story and what happens is Jesus comes among us. He's Emmanuel, God with us. It's his presence. And then how does it end? Matthew chapter 28, the great commission. And lo, I'm with you always. As you go out on a mission for me, I'll be with you. It's his presence. You see, his presence continually. You go through difficult times. What do people talk about? It's his presence. You go to a funeral. What's the most popular verse at a funeral? Psalm 23. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Because you are present with me. It's his presence that casts out fear. Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah chapter 41, to fear not, for I am with you. Do not, do not be dismayed. I am your God. I am your strength. I will uphold you because I'm there. It's his presence. And it's that presence that Moses is crying out for in this passage of Scripture. He says, we need your presence. We need you to be with us. It's not just me to have an encounter with you. We need the entire nation to have an encounter with you. How else will they know? Look at verse 16. How else will they know? We don't want to go unless you go with us. How else will we be distinguished from the other people. It's not by how we walk. It's not by how we talk. It's not by how we fight. It's not by the weapons we have. It's because you're present and you're with us. And I remember I was sharing with my daughters last night when this passage of scripture became so meaningful to me. So we were living in Dallas, Texas. We were planning to plant this church. And I remember I was laying on the living room floor and my wife came walking in and she reads me this passage from Exodus chapter 33. And she says, listen to what Moses says here. If you don't go, we don't want to go. And she said, we need to start praying this about planting this church. Because if God's not there, we don't want to go. 
Like if he doesn't go ahead of us and he doesn't start to do the work in people's hearts and he's not present at the meetings that we have and all, if it's not about him, we don't want to go. So we began to beg God, you got to just show up. You got to do this. And it's really shaped our culture as a church, this idea of encounter from the very beginning. We didn't have the language at that time. And then it says in there that what else will distinguish us? Verse 16. And you know, one of the things that we do as a church, if you're a guest with us today, is you'll receive an email from us if you give us your email address. And it's a simple email. It's not trying to be invasive or anything. We just say, what was your, what was your visit like? We've been doing this for years. And we've gotten a lot of responses, hundreds of responses. We get people that visit every week. And, and so we've gotten hundreds of responses from people. And do you know what underlies the responses continually? The reason why I had a great experience at Southbridge wasn't just because people were friendly. It wasn't just because the sermon was engaging. It wasn't because the worship was some type of music that they liked. It wasn't any of that kind of stuff. It's they sense God's presence there. And so you see it. And it's through the friendliness and through the messages and through the singing and all that type of stuff. Sometimes it's kind of underlying. Sometimes it's overt and people just give direct statements. I'm going to share a couple with you. These are people that visited our church one time. And they said these words, we experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit there. <laughs> How can I not notice that one, right? It kind of sticks out for God's presence. His praise and worship was great. Another person says this, I was impressed. Okay, so now I'm like, well, what were they impressed with? What's going to happen next? They were impressed with the movie posters we had in the lobby of our church? Like, what was it? He says, I was impressed. I enjoyed myself and was met by God where I needed to be met. It means God showed up. We did another survey, a real loose one, recently where we asked a bunch of people that travel quite a distance to come to church, why in the world are you driving past hundreds of churches to come here? And in each one of their responses, you could see elements of it was because God shows up there. And one couple, they, they said real clearly, they said, what is the difference about Southbridge is that God shows up every Sunday. His spirit is alive and present during our worship, teaching, and fellowship times. We believe he shows up. And then they explained why and how, and they said, we firmly believe God has his hand on Southbridge, and his spirit is strong collectively in the body. We did not find this everywhere that we went, which is sad. And lately, when I think about our church, one passage that continually comes to mind is Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me. It's coming to my presence. This is Jesus speaking. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Southbridge is a place where people can come with all of their baggage and find unconditional love and acceptance and rest for their souls. A place where they can journey with others and find out who they really are in Christ and be transformed into his likeness. And then they quote Psalm 34, 8. They say, Psalm 34, 8 tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then they comment, we've tasted the Lord's presence at Southbridge. And we know that it is good. For this we are blessed and gladly travel every week to come and meet with God. And so we beg God to show up. And you know what happens? He does. And do you know what we're challenging you to do with this 10x vision that we're talking about? We're challenging you to do something that there's no way you're going to be able to possibly do it. Now listen, if the vision was simply go invite 10 people to church, you could do that today after the service. So you can get some of the people that are coming in for the movie or whatever. You can invite 10 people to church. If it even was just go share the gospel with 10 people, you could do that. In fact, you don't even have to be a Christian to do that. You can memorize facts and go out and recite the gospel to someone, to 10 people in one day, if that's what the goal, that's not the vision. We're wanting the city to be transformed. That means you need God to show up in that meaning accurately to show off who he is and his glory and draw people to themselves as they see who he is. You know what will happen if you actually get on board with this? God's going to begin to transform you. And you're going to have multiple times throughout the next 10 years where you're going to come to the place in your faith journey and you're going to say, I can't do this. And I want to challenge each one of you today. Have you ever obeyed God to the point where it's uncomfortable? Where you get to the If you haven't, I'm going to tell you definitively that you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. You're following a God that you've created. 
if you have not walked by faith with a God who's going to make you uncomfortable in the very things he calls you to do because he takes you to the place where you can't do it, so then you have to depend upon him. Look at every person that follows him by faith through the scripture. That's what happens. They come to the place where they realize, I can't do this. And it's been part of my journey over the last six years as I've been doing different parts of leading this church. I've come to the place multiple times. I, I can't do this. One of the prayers we pray all the time as a church and as a staff, help us to see people the way that you see people. You know what? As God starts to do that, you know what I say? Stop. I can't handle that. I can't do it. And I realized that over the last couple of weeks, I've been doing it with my wife. She'll share stuff with me about different things that are happening in the world or different people. And when it's hurtful, when it's hard, you know what I've been doing to her? Why are you telling? Stop telling me this. And I realized that I was having a conversation with a friend that started, we started talking through these things. It became evident to me, why am I shutting this down? Like, what's happening here? And I told about one conversation I had. We were laying in bed one night about two weeks ago. And she starts telling me about some people she knows in this church where they're starting to adopt a bunch of kids. And there was one couple they adopted out of the foster care situation. And the first night they had pizza together as a family, she's telling me about. So it sounds like an exciting story so far. And she says, but this kid had to go to the bathroom really bad, but he wouldn't leave because they were having pizza together. And they couldn't figure out why. And finally, when they went to send him off to, get some, to go to the, to the restroom, he said, if I go to the bathroom, will you promise you won't eat all the pizza? And I heard that, and I was mad. I want to give every foster kid pizza when I hear that story. I can't do that. And that wouldn't fix their problem. And so then I say to my wife, don't tell me that stuff. I don't want to know that stuff. A couple weeks later, way later, we're riding in the car together. We're going to a birthday party, which is a fun time, right? It's a celebration time. And we're just talking about life and things that are happening. And she was telling me about something, an experience she had where she was watching CNN. She was watching the news at one moment. She changed the channel to go to another channel and saw stuff and just the contrast of what took place in one part of the world in Syria. I don't know if you've seen the stuff that's happening there. Let me give you a news update. It's screwed up. And it's all bad. And she starts telling me about this building that gets bombed. And they're pulling bodies out. And to keep dignity, they're wrapping the bodies up. But she says, every body they're pulling out is a small child. And she said, in the debris, I saw these chubby little feet. And I just said, stop. Like, what, what, how is you telling me this helping me in any way? And there's nothing we can do. Even if we sent all the money we had, it wouldn't fix this problem. And so what are we, we going to do? There's nothing to do. I don't even want to know. And then, as I'm talking to my friend about this situation, I realize maybe God's showing you the pain of other people. Maybe he's showing you how he looks at people. Now, I've taught you before what Jesus says when he looks at the multitudes. He sees them as harassed and helpless, it says in the book of Matthew. And literally that means it's like a woman who's been ravaged. She's been raped and beaten and left for dead. That's what he sees when he looks at us with all the needs and all the pain. And he's got compassion. Do you know what compassion means? It's not just that he knows about that stuff. It's that he feels it. And so what I was doing is I was coming to a place where I was going, I can't handle this. I can't handle seeing people the way that you do. Let me tell you something. If you go on this journey with us at 10X, you will begin to see people differently. It'll change the way you look at the clerk at the grocery store. It'll change the way you feel about the people that are around you in your cubicles. It will change the way that you view your neighbors and all the stuff that's happening. It'll change because God will do a work in your heart to where you start to see people the way that he does. He's going to show up. You can't do that, and you're not going to be able to handle it. But he can. He says, you come to me, and I'll do it. I'll give you rest for your soul. I'll show up. I'll do stuff you could never do. The Apostle Paul even says, I got to the point where I had the spirit of life itself. He said, that's the Apostle Paul. It's a hero of our faith. He wanted to die. He says, but this happens so that I might have greater faith in you. And that's the journey that we're going on as we try to reach the city for Christ, is that we get a heart for people to the place where we get to, like Moses says, or like Paul says, I'd give up my own salvation so they would come to Christ. Who would you do that for? That we would love them like that, that we would share with them, that we'd pray for them. It's going to be a journey. It will be scary. And you're only invited if you really want to buy into the idea of seeing God accurately. 
When you see God accurately, you have an encounter with him, it fuels that faith, and you go out, not because you have a list or an agenda, a quota, and all that stuff, it's because of what you've experienced, the life change you have. And that's what Moses calls out for here. He says, you come with this, you do this thing, and you know what he says in verse 18? Now show me your glory. And God answers that prayer, and what you see is then he doesn't just see God accurately, but he responds appropriately. That's the next part of an encounter with God. An encounter means seeing God accurately. It does mean that, but that alone is incomplete. It means experiencing him to where you realize who he truly is, and then you respond appropriately. It's seeing God accurately and responding appropriately to that revelation that you're given. And what happens for Moses is he asks for this. Then God says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to hide you. I'm going to make it so that you can't see everything because if you saw everything, you would die. And I'm going to pass by. And the scriptures say that he saw God's backside, that he saw the back of God. God doesn't have a back. He doesn't have a face. He doesn't have hands. He is spirit, we're taught. This is language that's used so that we can start to get a glimpse of what happened there. What happened? Some remnants of God's glory go past him. But you know what's really significant? As you go to chapter 34, if you have your Bibles, one page over, and you see in verses 6 and 7 that God then gives his spoken word. I don't want you to be confused about what you're about to see here, Moses. It's not just a bright light. It's not just some momentary experience. I want you to know who I am. So he declares his word to Moses. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, verse 6, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate, feeling the pain, and gracious, giving what you don't deserve, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness. But also, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers, third and fourth generation. Loving, kind, forgiving, merciful, holy, just, righteous, and wrathful. All at the same time. That's who he is accurately. And Moses sees him accurately. And then look what happens in the next verse in verse 8. And Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. And he responds appropriately to him. But notice in this passage what doesn't happen. And Moses went to a service, and they had great music, and the lights were good, and there was an electric guitar. They played bluegrass, or there was a pipe organ, or whatever it is that your style that you like. It's none of that. It's not about music. Worship is a state of the heart. It's when you see him accurately. It's humbling. Because when you reflect upon who he is, you then have to think about who you are. And then you respond appropriately, and the only appropriate response is surrender. It's trust. It's faith. When you see him accurately, then you respond appropriately. And an overflow of that may be singing like we see in the Psalms, but you look at worship passages throughout the scripture, you know what you see over and over again? Is you see people have an accurate picture of who God is and then they respond to him appropriately. Probably the most famous passage in all the scripture about this is in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah has this heavenly experience where he sees God seated on his throne. And then you go through the passage in verses 1 through 4 and it talks about what he sees. And he sees these angels singing, holy, holy. And then what he says is, this is so amazing. I must be special that I'm seeing this. I'm going to go write a book about it. It'll be a bestseller. I'll be in New York Times, be able to go on TV and do evangelistic things where I say, if you send $5,000, I'll tell you about the rest of my experience. Oh, wait, that's what we do. Look at what Isaiah does. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I've seen something I should not be able to see. And by His grace, I've been allowed to live. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Here I am. You send me. I'll go on a mission for you. I'll do whatever you want. He responds appropriately. You see it in the Gospels. In the Gospels, the fullness of God's glory comes in Jesus Christ. He's Emmanuel, God with us. 
John chapter 1 says that he came and he dwelt among us. The word that's actually used there is that he tabernacled with us. It's a play on what happened in Exodus when God's presence comes in the tabernacle. Jesus is the tabernacle coming to us with his glory being revealed. People see him. Some people don't get who he is and so they don't respond appropriately. Some people see him and meet him. It takes them a little bit of time. Guys like Peter. Peter, it's not his first encounter with Jesus when he finally realizes how special Jesus really is. What happens is that God reaches right into his life in the context that he understands. He does this miraculous catch miracle. And in Luke chapter 5 of verse 8, you see what Peter does. When he sees who God is, when he finally realizes what happens here, he says, away from me, I'm a sinful man. He sees God accurately, then he responds appropriately. You go to the book of Revelation, and you think about having a witness of the, the resurrected Christ, which is who we would see if we were to see him physically. And what happens with John is he's in isolation on the island of Patmos, and he hears this voice behind him, a voice I couldn't describe to you, like rushing water that's coming behind him. And then he turns, and it's described in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. You can read the whole thing, but he sees Jesus with fire in his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth and all of the descriptions that are there. And you know what he does? He doesn't rejoice. He doesn't jump up and down. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Because when we see God accurately, we must reflect on then who we are and respond appropriately. Now God, by his grace, comes to John, puts his hand on his shoulders and says, do not fear. God is gracious. God is merciful. He wants a relationship with you. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, I am the way. There's only one way, and I'm it. I'm the only way that you're going to get to the Father because I atone for your sin, because I'm your mediator now, because I've paid for all this stuff, and you can come into his presence, and it's because of his grace. It's not because he's not holy, and it's not because he's not just. He poured all that out on me, Jesus says. And I took upon the sins of the world. I took your sins on the cross so that you could have an encounter with the living God. I'm the only way you can do it, though, is through Christ. And so how does that happen for us as New Testament believers? Well, the Bible's really clear. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the very word of Christ. And so that's why we open up the word every Sunday morning here at this church. So we get an accurate picture of who God is so that people can then have an encounter with him. It's so significant that when God passes before Moses, it's not just some bright light that we can go, wow, I wish that I had that. You think about Moses' relationship with God. He's got nothing on us. You look at it, he spoke to God as a friend, like face to face. And I look at that and I think, I wish I had that. <laughs> Moses didn't even have revelation of who Jesus is. Moses didn't have the Spirit of God indwelling him for relationship. He didn't have God living inside of him. But whenever you have an encounter with God, you know what happens? You are transformed for Moses and for us. And that's what we long for for you. For every person that comes to our church, every time you come to our church, is we want you to have an encounter with the living God. So we make a big deal about him and we open the scripture so that you will see it. Last week I told you that as a church, we're going to be more intentional about this than ever before because I shared with you that we've all, we're going to keep doing what we do Sunday morning. We're going to keep doing those things, but we're going to be more intentional about Ephesians chapter 4, the work of the pastor and the teacher and the evangelist is to equip the body so that they can do works of service. And so we want to invest in the people that God brings to this place so that then you're equipped to go out and take that stuff to the rest of the world. So how? How does that happen? And that's where our core values come in, things like encounter. We want you to have encounters with God so that you can then equip other people and then bring that to other people. And so one of the things that we're doing as a church to become more intentional than we've ever been before is we're starting what we're calling encounter groups. We've always had as a church what we call community groups. We're still going to have those. But we're adding to that what we're calling encounter groups and engage groups. I'm going to talk about the community groups which we're going to be renaming, and I'll talk about that next week, embrace groups and engage groups. We'll talk about that in the days ahead. Today I specifically want to just talk to you about encounter groups. We're going to have a value-based group structure at our church. It's going to influence our leadership structure. It's going to influence what we do, the things we say yes to, the things we say no to, and how all of this works. 
And for encounter groups, what they're going to be is they're groups specifically designed to paint an accurate picture of who God is. So then every person that's part of that group, then it's on them to respond appropriately to who he is. It can't be just come and no information. It can't be just come and no information. Moses doesn't walk away from the situation where he says, I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, and I'm loving. He's like, good, if there's a Bible quiz, I've got your attributes down. Now, there's a response to that for every person. And so for each one of us, I want you to be praying about your role in, a, in an encounter group or an engaged group or in an embrace group. For some of you, God's especially equipped you to teach the Bible. He's especially equipped you with life experiences, especially equipped you with various different things. I want you to be praying about possibly leading in January an encounter group when we launch our next session of encounter groups. If you look at your worship program, you'll see the first four that we're offering right now. Some of you are going to go out. You're going to buy into this idea of 10X, and you're going to get strategic about relationships, and you're going to be praying for somebody. You might even lead them to Jesus. Have you thought, then what happens? Now what do I do? Well, one of the things we're doing as a church is we're offering what we're calling an encounter group named Foundations. Foundations is going to be foundations of the faith. We're going to talk about how to pray, how to study your Bible, different disciplines that you have in, in the spiritual journey, silence, something that is so foreign to us. We're going to talk about how to share your faith. And it's not just for new believers, though. I want everyone in our church to go through it. I strongly encourage, and I'm doing it right now, that in the next two years, every person that's a leader in our church would go through the Foundations Encounter Group. It lasts, I think it's 10 weeks. You can see information about who's teaching and when it's offered and all that stuff in your worship program. Because here's what we found out as a church. When we did Renewable Church Membership, we sent out a survey of our church body, and we found out that 50% of Christians, have been Christians for 10 years or more, in our church, this isn't just like America, in our church, feel ill-equipped to share the gospel. That's like, how in the world could we ever ask you to share Christ when you don't even know how to do it? And so we want every person to go through that group. And there are other groups. Some of you may be in a spot where you feel like you're just kind of in a spiritual funk. Like you just need something, to, some kind of something to rejuvenate you. You can look at the groups like our Good and Beautiful God group that are in there. There's various ones. I won't list off everything that we're going to do in the days ahead. But some of you need to think about praying about teaching one of those and leading one of those. And there's a process to do that. And you can contact our leaders and email us to do that. There's also some of you, you need to be in these for various reasons and they're for seasons. So I want to challenge each one of you as that. Just thinking about our encounter group specifically. What's your role? What's your place? We want every person in our church that buys into our vision in one of the groups. We're calling them e-groups. Encounter, embrace, and engage. You're one of those groups. And if encounter is one that rings your bell for some reason, it sets something off, you're thinking about how you do that in the days ahead. And you can go out in the lobby to one of our group's kiosk and be able to talk to somebody about that today. What is it to encounter God? It's to see him accurately and respond appropriately. And some of you need to respond to him today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you that you don't hide yourself from us, that you want to be known through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for those who need an encounter with your son, Jesus, for the very first time today. For those that may become, they know stuff about God, they've got thoughts, they maybe know verses, maybe grew up in church, whatever it is, but they haven't had a real encounter with you or they've been worshiping a false version of you, that today would be the day that you would press on their hearts so heavy their sin and their need for your son, Jesus Christ, as Savior, and they would turn to your son, Jesus, right now in this moment. And they would ask your son, Jesus Christ, to give them rest for their souls, to give them forgiveness for their sins, to give them a Savior that saves them from those sins. I pray for those of us who are followers of yours, who've been walking with you for one day or ten years or however long it's been, that if in any way we've put things on you that are not accurate to you, that you'd put on us a spirit of repentance and turning to you and worshiping you with a heart that's surrendered. I pray, God, that you would continue as the service goes on to paint an accurate picture of who you are and that we would respond appropriately to you and that you would receive glory and honor and praise for everything that happens in our lives, that our city would see it and that our lights would shine in such a way that they would praise you, Father.
and that you would receive the glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.